0: I think as a political principle, not just on climate, but on anything, it's really important to try to fight to make the world that you wanna live in possible rather than you know taking a look at the way things are going and sort of giving up before, um, before the outcome has been determined.
1: Welcome back to What Comes After, What Comes Next, with me, James Shaw, Minister of Climate Change and Co-Leader of the Green Party. My guest this week is the author and journalist David Wallace-Wells. I first read David's book, The Uninhabitable Earth, when it was published in 2017, and found it to be an occasionally harrowing read. Beginning with the now famous sentence, It is worse, much worse than you think, The book sets out in rich and forensic detail the science of climate change and the consequences of a warming planet for our politics, economic systems and society. Troubling though it is, I would say that if you were to read only one book about the climate crisis, then make it this one. And the book turned out to be remarkably prescient. Twelve months after the book came out, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released their own generation-defining report which in itself was a turning point. It was the first time since the Paris Agreement was signed that science had made clear what needed to be done to have any chance of keeping global temperature increases below 1.5 degrees. They concluded that global CO2 emissions must at least halve by 2030 and that those cuts are possible only with unprecedented transformation in virtually every aspect of society. Since that IPCC report was published, some of the world's largest emitting countries have committed to some form of net zero emissions by the middle of this century. I think it would be fair to say that by articulating the choices that we face in very challenging detail, David's book has played some role in helping to shift global momentum, alongside, of course, worldwide movements like the school Strike for Climate and Extinction Rebellion. I caught up with David from his home in New York, where he lives with his partner and two young children, the the youngest of which was born just one month ago. And so, with his permission, I opened the conversation by asking David how he thinks about the future as a new father of two small children, what worries him, and what hope he has for the world that his daughters will inherit from him. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback. My email is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. Here's my conversation with David Wallace Wells.
0: Well, I you know, I got asked this question a fair amount when the book first came out because my first daughter was then was then a newborn. She's now about um, she's now about three. And you know, I I would often say then um, part of my excitement about having children is a sign that I am living in denial too Um, and, you know, thinking only, thinking sort of selfishly about myself and my own desires for the world. Um, And maybe also um, that I remain sort of indoctrinated with some amount of reflexive hope about the future. Um, You know, I often talk about how I'm Was born in the 1990s, born in the 1980s, grew up in the 1990s in the US, and I I, I kind of was raised with a a faith that the future would be uh, more just and more prosperous and more equitable. And I think some of that um, is sort of difficult to discard entirely. Um, But I also said a few years ago that, you know, I think as a political principle, not just on climate, but on anything, it's really important to try to fight to make the world that you want to live in possible rather than, you know, taking a look at the way things are going and sort of giving up before um, before the outcome has been determined. And I felt that, you know, a few years ago um, in writing the book and publishing the book that there was an enormous amount we could do to improve the relative conditions of the future of the planet, um, even given quite dramatic climate change. Um, I now feel even more that way and even more hopeful because I've grown actually somewhat significantly more optimistic about the trajectory we're on than I was just a few years ago. Now, I don't think we're going to avoid dramatic global warming. I don't even think we're going to avoid two degrees Celsius of warming, which is what most scientists would say is a kind of catastrophic level and we can talk about, if you'd like, just, just what that means, how disruptive that would be. But I think that some of the, the really scarier end of the spectrum that we, um, a few years ago, were talking about as a kind of a business as usual target, um, four degrees, five degrees, and maybe even north of that, I think that's looking increasingly unlikely because of a lot of changes in our politics, around climate, um, in our um, energy systems, and the cost of renewable energy, in um, the geopolitics of climate change, um, and cultural forces that have um, evolved over the last few years. So I think, you know, we're getting a sort of a clearer, narrower sense of where we're likely to end up, say by the end of the century. And it's still a warming level that our parents and grandparents would have been horrified at and which we're going to have to do an enormous amount to adapt to. But it's still a considerably more comfortable prospect than the one than the world that I thought we were going to be um, having to adjust to just a few years ago. And that also gives me hope, not just because you know, adjusting to two and a half degrees Celsius is better than adjusting to four and a half degrees Celsius. Although really it is a lot easier. Those are two very different worlds. Um, But also because it means that things could conceivably accelerate even more. And that the speed at which my own sense of the near term and medium term future has changed, um, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, we could look back and think that the things that I'm imagining today are impossible Um, Could it could have become quite possible uh, very soon, so in that sense, you know, the last few years have been a bit of a you know a journey and evolution from um, I think some people would have called me a fatalist or um, you know um, an apocalypticist or something a few years ago and um, to to a certain degree that was true although I would want to emphasize I I did always say it was up to us and we could make changes but my my baseline understanding of the near term and the medium term of the future is you know I think, given where I was a few years ago, relatively optimistic, and that means, you know, certainly when I'm thinking about bringing new life into the world and what kind of experience of the planet that child will have, um, you know, I'm not as I'm not as gloomy as I was even just a few years ago.
1: What are some of the the biggest changes that you've seen in the three or so years since you wrote the book?
0: Well, you know, just in the sort of Technological sec- area, you know, you've seen renewable energy prices falling about tenfold over the last decade, which means that just about everywhere in the world now, um, they are cost competitive with dirty energy. And in some places, it's actually cheaper to build new renewable capacity than even to continue running old dirty energy. And that means that the logic of energy transition is really, really strong. Now, fossil fuel interests are also strong. Um, the political economy of fossil capitalism is really entrenched. And it's not just as simple as saying, well, this is a cheaper investment, we should do it. There are a lot of other obstacles to overcome, especially when you consider that a lot of the biggest oil companies in the world are state-owned. Um, nevertheless, it is much easier to imagine a fast transition when the business of that seems you know, encouraging too than it would have been facing a very different economic calculus in which it was an economic burden to, to, um, to decarbonize. That's one big thing. I think that because of the um, you know, the natural disasters and the extreme weather that we've seen all around the world, but maybe most especially in the Northern Hemisphere, in Europe, in the United States, um, the world has sort of, especially the powerful players on the world stage, have really woken up to the fact that climate change is here now and is a present tense threat to the way that we live and I think most people will, like, would accept also that it's likely to get worse and um, going to disrupt our lives considerably more in the decades ahead. You know, that's, it's a sort of a tragic but also encouraging outcome of some of these um, terrible weather impacts we've seen from you know, wildfires to incredible rainstorms to hurricane after hurricane, you know, that kind of thing. Um, you don't want to have to go through those impacts to sort of wake up, but I think we have woken up as a result. And sort of simultaneous and and working in the same direction is that, is the fact that we've seen for the first time a sort of a global political grassroots movement around climate, Um, you know, the face of which is Greta Thunberg, although she's certainly not the only person um, leading that movement. It's an incredibly, you know, uh, distributed network of activists, um, incredibly inspiring, almost all of them quite young. And the cultural pressure that those people, those activists, those protesters, have put on leaders in their own country, um, geopolitical figures, and indeed corporate entities as well, is quite amazing. Such that, you know, a few years ago, there were still a lot of people in a lot of seats of power in a lot of parts of the world who would still say with a straight face, they they would tell you that climate change was not happening or it wasn't a problem. And that really is no longer the case anymore. You know, there are a lot of people who want to move much more slowly than I would like to move, um, but they are having those conversations in a very different context, in a very different framework, and they're probably hearing about it from their children at the dinner table. And if they're, you know, in a in a um, a corporate, you know, CEO, they're worrying about what the public thinks of their company if they're trying to delay action on climate change. And so you've seen across the corporate world a huge raft of. New commitments to decarbonization. Now, I, you know, some people would say we should only trust these companies so far as we can throw them. I wouldn't go quite that far, but you know, I do I am skeptical of a lot of those commitments. And yet it is still a sign that the politics have really, really changed that those people and those companies are making those commitments at all. On the geopolitical stage, you've seen a similar story where countries all around the world, especially during the pandemic year, which has been quite interesting to see. You've seen Japan, South Korea, um, the whole EU, but also many member nations of the EU and maybe most um, notably uh, China have made much more aggressive pledges than they've ever made before on decarbonization. And that's most exciting to me and encouraging, not just because they add up to a lot. If you include Joe Biden's commitment to net zero, which technically you probably shouldn't because it hasn't been like passed into law or anything. But if you do, that gets you to about two thirds of global emissions um, on a very uh, ambitious trajectory towards decarbonization. I should say again, even those ambitious trajectories aren't gonna uh, help us avoid quite damaging impacts, but it's much, much better than we were a few years ago. But what's most exciting to me about those pledges is just that they were done independently. Hmm. They didn't happen at you know something like the Paris Accords or a COP conference. Um, they didn't happen in, you know, halls where ministers from different countries were arguing with each other, applying peer pressure, and using the moral logic of decarbonization to shame one another into action. They happened more or less inside those countries, thinking through their own economic and energy futures independently, which means that each of them saw their near-term you know, landscape and decided they would be better off decarbonizing faster rather than decarbonizing more slowly. That is a real radical change from the way that this was understood at the geopolitical level just a few years ago. And I think it's incredibly encouraging because it means that we are, as a planet, not undertaking this transition out of the goodness of our hearts, although that's, of course, a part of why we're doing it. But we're also doing it because we understand that we will be better off relatively quickly if we do it relatively quickly. And, you know, I think much more action is possible as a result, now I'm not like, you know. I think I hope you can tell already. I'm not a um, I'm not a corporate stooge. I'm not like somebody who thinks that you know markets will solve this on their own or anything like that. But I'd like to have you know in this fight as many allies as we can possibly get. And the fact that we have allies in you know in court in the corporate world, um, in markets um, which are sort of discounting um, dirty energy um, at a much faster rate than they were a few years ago, and among um, international leaders who are really operating narrowly from a sense of national self-interest, all of that to me is, is quite good. The climate coalition is much, much bigger and more powerful than it was just a few years ago. We have a long way to go. You know, The UN publishes a report every year on the emissions gap and it's huge. Um, we are doing much, much less than we say we want to do. And yet, given where we were just a few years ago, I think we have to count the fact and many more people in many more parts of society are at least saying we need to move quickly, I think that, that, I think that has to count as, as progress. Do you see it the same way?
1: I do. I, uh, well, and there's two things that I was thinking in response, one of which is that, that latest report where they said uh, that the sum total of global pledges added up to a 1% reduction in emissions and it needed to be about a 45% reduction. Um, I actually took a silver lining out of that because that's the first time that that stock take Has suggested an actual decrease at all? Um, (laughs) That's right. Because previously, uh, you know, the sum total of commitments had had added up to an increase uh, in in global emissions, which is just you know completely in the wrong direction. And and so yes, I've I I was actually quite fascinated that even in the midst of the pandemic, uh, you know, China, South Korea, Japan, the United Kingdom, uh, the European Union, um, and yes, depending on You know how solid you take President Biden's um, uh, kind of comment that all of those countries committed to a net zero all gases. Well, sorry, China's carbon dioxide only, but you know uh, it's still a very very significant um, target. Saying that they wanted to be um, carbon neutral by by twenty fifty.
0: Well, you know I don't think that that's a coincidence that it's happening during the pandemic. I think that um, one of the thing. I mean this year has taught us many things, um, but a couple of them are. You know, they've showed us that we're, we're really vulnerable to changes in the natural world, um, that we need to sort of own up to that and respond to it. And we've also demonstrated through our um, measures that we've taken against the pandemic, some of us failing, some of us succeeding much more um, thoroughly as you guys have. Um, we've, we've demonstrated a willingness to take really quite dramatic action um, to safeguard ourselves and those around us hmm. and have done so in part by you know especially across um, the countries of, of Western Europe and the US by spending just a ton of money um, and that scale of spending if we keep it up and sort of directed or redirected even partially towards climate can make an enormous difference such that you know a climate plan you know Joe Biden wants to spend two and a half trillion dollars on climate according to his campaign pledges we'll see how that shakes out but that's his stated plan. Um, five years ago, that would have seen a prepos- seemed a preposterously large amount of spending on climate. And now we have you know, economists studying the stimulus, COVID stimulus that's been spent around the world and saying, if we spent just 10% of that money over the next four years, so for a total of 40% of the money we spent propping up um, our livelihoods during the pandemic, we could actually engineer a green transition of the planet uh, quite rapidly. And so we're just, you know, we're, we're in a different phase, um, a different conceptual place when it comes to government spending. And as a result, I think many more large scale projects seem possible. That's mm-hmm. not to say they're gonna get off the ground, it's not gonna say they're gonna be effective when they do, but um, at the very least, you know, the, um, the theater of ambition, is much much larger, I think, than it seemed just a few years ago. And in a perverse and again sort of tragic way, I think we have the pandemic to thank for that.
1: Yeah, it's been fascinating for me as a policymaker who came into government in twenty seventeen that at that time there was this cultural constraint on what we what we thought was possible in terms of our ability to you know find capital and then deploy it. Uh, and and <laughs> the pandemic certainly upended that. Um, now. Uh, not all of that was well targeted, you know, a lot of it was emergency spending, you know, there would have been a lot of wastage in the system that got deployed um, at scale and at speed because we kind of had to, um, but it certainly did shift the, shift the boundaries of, of what we thought was possible. The other thing that we really noticed here uh, was that um, there, there's been a, a, a sort of a big cultural move around, hey, listen to the scientists. You know, and and I think that was in contrast where uh, our um, pandemic response was heavily led by scientists and and health officials. But then we also got to see what happened in other parts of the world where it wasn't. Um, And and so I think where people were able to relate uh, essentially public policy to their personal circumstances, like the idea that I might get sick or that my grandparents might die, you know, it became something of an existential question, and and you know, listen to the scientists became quite a mantra. Um, and and there's a lot of tolerance for doing things now, uh, or for government intervening in ways in order to keep people safe. Um, it would, you know, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's
0: astonishing to me. Just sorry, I didn't to cut you off. No, no, no it's astonishing on. to. I mean, you you've had this incredible success with controlling the pandemic, and. It's amazing to me looking at the contrast, say in the U.S., but not just in the U.S. I think, you know, really you have to say all across Europe and the Americas, we've we've really fallen flat and failed. But, you know, you look at what happened, I guess it was a few weeks ago now in Auckland where you had a, a single um, family testing positive and the whole city shut, shut down. Now, more than a year into this pandemic, even given the incredible success that you've had the public was not outraged or unwilling, but in a certain way, sort of proud to do that. And I think that the lessons taught on that particular point in other parts of the world have not been nearly as clear. Because even when we we have quote followed the science in parts of Europe and the Americas, it hasn't been nearly as successful. But I think that um, your experience has been, you know, an inspiring one. Um, that you know, policy that is designed properly. And followed thoroughly and comprehensively by a population can do an enormous amount to protect the well being of a citizenry. And these are not, you know, when we're talking about assaults like these, like a pandemic, like climate change, we don't have to simply wait for them to come and hurt us. We can take preemptive and rapid action. And the differences are really quite stark. I mean, it's when you look at what the success that you've had in New Zealand and compare it to what we've had, you know, in even the best countries of Europe, it's um, it's really eye-opening and, and kind of horrifying. <laughs>
1: I, I, so, well, thank you. Uh, I, one of, one of the things that um, I mean, it's not that it's perfect, uh, and there are real costs to it. Uh, it's just that I think people get get the balance of costs. You know that, that yes, there are costs to doing this, but also the, that outweighs the costs of not doing it, uh, which, of course, is one of those questions we hear in the climate change debate as well all the time. The other thing, though, is the kind of social psychology of all of this, which is that the first lockdown, uh, which was a far more complete lockdown, uh, was um, the level of compliance was, you know, essentially sure 100%. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. I mean, there was some kind of notable exceptions, but they were really minor, um, and in the recent Auckland one, the level of compliance was very, very high, uh, but but lower. Um, and partially that was because people feel safe now. So there's an irony. You know, back, back a year ago when uh, we didn't have data about how widespread community transmission was and in a very bizarre way, the safest course of action seemed to be shutting down the entire country for a month or six weeks uh, was, you know, widely accepted as the most sensible thing that you could do um uh because because essentially there was a kind of fear of the unknown like we didn't know what we didn't know at that point but we did know what you know the numbers were looking like in places like italy and you know spain where the virus had taken off earlier than it had in in new zealand um but now People feel like, oh well, we've beaten it, and so they're a lot more casual about, you know, track and trace and you know all of those kinds of things. And I wonder about the parallel here with climate change as well, uh, which is that human beings, in my <laughs> amateur assessment, are very well suited to dealing with the clear and present danger. Right. So back when we were hunter gatherers, you know, there were lots of clear and present dangers, and we were highly attuned to them, and we would respond accordingly. But we're very, very badly uh, set up to deal with slow, distributed uh, challenges like climate change, um, where the the kind of causal relationship between my action and staying safe is many many steps removed. And and you kind of allude to this in uh, the Uninhabitable Earth, and in your kind of closing chapters, you you talk about the uh, need for. Um, kind of better storytelling and, and and new narratives and and actually it's a very you kind of don't you don't go down the kind of technological path and say well we just need to build lots more wind you know turbines and I mean need to do that too we do that too yeah, yeah. <laughs> but but you know I mean that that's where a lot of the climate discourse goes and you went in quite a different direction uh, with with yours and and I wonder about the kind of response to that because that feels a lot harder to me uh, than just building a whole lot of uh, wind turbines.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I would say a few things. The first is that um, the thing I worry about more than the fact of climate change being a slow moving distributed threat is our capacity to normalize disaster as it comes. Um, And maybe that is in part because it is arriving slowly, but I look at you know the experience of Californians living through the last couple of seasons of wildfires, um, even Australia, which had just absolutely you know you, you know as well as yeah. I do, um, absolutely devastating experience with wildfires last year, um, and you know those populations were to a certain degree scarred by those experiences, but it hasn't actually upended their ways of life in the way that we might have expected beforehand. Contemplating disasters like that. And in fact, you see that outcome in many different parts of the world in many different ways, and you see it in the pandemic too. Where you know, in the U.S., when we had you know, fifty cases, we were really scared, and we had fifty thousand, we were less scared. When we lost, our, when the first hundred thousand person died, it was on the front page of the New York Times. It was a major event. They didn't do the same thing for two hundred thousand, or three hundred thousand, or four hundred thousand. Um, even though you know the scale of suffering and tragedy is is growing with each of those measures, because we've simply gotten used to some level of suffering and dying. And you know, I think about this maybe most acutely in contrast to the death toll of air pollution, which is tied up in in um, fossil fuel production and climate change, but isn't exactly the same thing. Where you know today. There was a a recent report that came out that said, you know, 9 million people are dying globally from air pollution from the burning of fossil fuels. So that's, you know, that's a holocaust every single year um, that air pollution is imposing on the planet. And we are not responding to that crisis like there's a holocaust every year at all. We're responding to it as though it's part of the background noise of human suffering. And that's one of the biggest narratives that I personally want to change or see change. Is the way in which we relate to the suffering of people elsewhere on the world, um, and you know, at the moment, I think many of us in, in places like the U.S. are sort of raised to regard the humanity of people living in, say, you know, urban India um, or urban China as, as somewhat lesser, um, and as a result, we don't calculate their suffering as equal to our own, and I think that that's a real, real problem um, for dealing with climate change and especially its climate its impacts and what will be required of those countries um, on the adaptation side of things, because many of the most devastating impacts are likely to hit the equatorial band of the planet hardest. Um, Many of those countries are poorest. Australia's actually a bit of an outlier there, one of the wealthy countries that is gonna be hit really hard. But in general, it's the poorest countries who've done the least to produce this crisis, who are going to suffer most from it. And if we we can engineer some kind of a way to Respond to that through adaptation. It's going to require a real reset of this sort of political, conceptual, political framework through which places like um, the U.S. think about their responsibilities towards the developing world. Um, now, the reason I was focused on, you know, sort of narrative shifts and storytelling is, you know, let you you put it as a sort of like I, I wanted to see those things change, and I do. But I was writing and still think of myself and work today less as a um, directed activist and more as someone who's interested in the way that climate change is going to change how we live um, in all of these ways. It's you know, I'm I'm not working, I'm not writing to produce a particular policy outcome or policy um, goal, although I, you know, I have my preferences, but I look at the scale of the changes that we're inevitably going to be seeing at, you know, even the sort of best case scenario of something like two degrees where, you know, we're going to see storms and flooding events that used to hit once a century, hitting every single year. We're going to see cities in South Asia and the Middle East um, registering lethal heat 200 days a year. Um, We're likely to see, you know, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions of climate refugees, Um, you know, a really, really bleak. Um, disruptive force hitting the world and changing it, and I think um, even if we find a way to rebuild and rework our systems, our infrastructure, but also our politics and our culture to respond to those impacts in a way that preserves the um, the hope of you know human flourishing and justice, those changes are going to be so large that they reverberate all throughout our lives and. I think there's been um, very little written about those impacts because we've been so closely focused on the narrow threats from climate change and what we need to do to mitigate or avert um, really catastrophic outcomes. And those things are important, but I think that you know we need to also start to think about how we engineer a geopolitical response to a global refugee crisis, how we um, how we're likely to start telling stories about nature um, in the decades ahead, given the different way that nature, the different role that nature is is playing in our lives and that sort of thing. And I've been thinking on that last point a lot over the last couple of months about a number of reports that have um, found either having happened already or in the next decade or two, um, that many of these natural systems, natural ecosystems in the world from um, Forests to rainforests uh, to peat systems that we um, we used to think of as, as carbon sinks that took carbon out of the atmosphere and sort of aided us in our fight against climate change are becoming actually carbon sources producing carbon, which means you know we have an entire history of many centuries of regarding the quote-unquote natural world, say a local forest, as being a retreat from the human sphere and especially more recently from the industrial sphere. And we think, um, you know, at a personal level, if we need to, you know, get some peace of mind, we can go on a hike or go camping or something. Not that I've ever done that, but that's something we think in our culture. And, uh, you know, and at a more climate systems level, we have thought these things can be, can help us in our fight because they will, in taking carbon out of the atmosphere, make our, you know, make it easier for us to, to hit our, um, our carbon goals. But if in a few decades, all of these systems are actually conspiring against us and producing more carbon and making it harder for us to stabilize the planet's climate, how are we gonna regard the forest just on the edge of town? How are we gonna regard regard the children's story that treats that space as a kind of sanctified natural universe distinct from from human intervention which we can use to inspire us in our conservationist or preservationist tendencies around the planet i don't know the answer to that but i i think even as someone who's lived my entire life in in a major city it's profoundly disorienting to even contemplate the possibility that you know we there have been people who've written about the end of nature but what we're really talking about here is like the reversal of nature or nature becoming um the same sort of villain in our climate struggle as industrialization and industrial capitalism has been to this point, producing more carbon rather than taking it out of the atmosphere. Now, you know, it's possible that those predictions don't come to pass or to the extent that they do, the effect is quite limited. And maybe we carry on the same cultural traditions we've had for centuries regarding these systems as sort of um, natural spaces of retreat and recovery. But I also think the chances that they Um, They change their meaning is quite real and fascinating to think about, given the sort of climate tipping point um, that we're tipping points that we're facing now. How will we how will all of us alive at the second half of the century um, regard those systems and regard our, our place on the earth?
1: I'm really interested in this point because one of the other very influential characters, uh, well, for much of the last century, but in particular in the relation to the climate debate over the last couple of years, is David Attenborough, uh, who, you know, has released, have you seen his re- recent, um, what does he call it, his, it's sort of a bit like a valedictory, but he, 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 re- <laughs> he refers to it as his, as his testimonial um, documentary and, and related book. In which he describes essentially the carnage of the twentieth century uh, on uh, our wildernesses around the world, and how that is, you, you know, d- d- exactly as you say, degrading the ability of the biosphere to uh, do what it has done for millennia, uh, and and you know, maintain a, a balanced climate uh, and other other life supporting systems. Uh, but his solution is rebuild the wildernesses, you know, rewild uh, the, the, the countryside um, and, and give back to nature some of the areas that we have taken, taken off it. And that certainly is gaining a great deal of currency. Um, and, and so when it, how does that sit with, with what you've just described as the sort of inversion uh, from carbon sinks to carbon sources of, you know, at least some of those, some of those places?
0: Well, first, I would say that, you know, something that Elizabeth Colbert said to me recently, which is when you're talking about rewilding, that's not nature. (laughs) That's an engineered response, and it may very well be worth doing. And it may amount to the best preservation and conservation that we can do. But it's not the same as saying, here is an, an untouched spot. And maybe it's foolish to dream of an untouched spot, or even to use that uh, conceptual framework to inspire us to to take action to preserve the planet's climate. Um, I don't really know. As I say, I'm you know I'm a lifelong urban dweller. It's not like I have an intuitive love for the natural world, but I've come to really appreciate in recent years just how much it does for us and how much we would lose if we lose significant parts of it. But the question of say you know preserving a wilderness space in which different species, plant and animal, can thrive is a bit different than talking about what that same ecosystem will mean for our carbon balance sheet. We may well be able to preserve the Brazilian Amazon. There may be significant legal measures taken over the next few years that make all of the logging that's been done there and all of the cattle farming that's being done there and all of the burning that's, that's done there by you know uh, directed human hands. Make all of that illegal. That's it's conceivable. It's not going to probably not going to happen with Jair Bolsonaro who's still president, but um, you know it's possible. Um, but that doesn't change the fact that in a world that is significantly hotter with an atmosphere with significantly more carbon, it may still prove impossible to keep the Amazon as a carbon sink throughout the end of the century. That some of these other changes in the atmosphere and in the climate are going to make that flip from carbon um, sink to carbon source inevitable. Um, now it's possible, you know, that to some degree, human intervention at a local level could forestall some of those impacts. Um, you know, either through some kind of you know genetic interventions or some better understanding of the way that you know exactly how forests are grown and grown and protected, and you know we we could maybe take some measures to to make that happen later or slower. But saying we want to set aside land is not itself a guarantee that that land will continue to work in the same way that it has worked in the past. Um, and I think you see that most dramatically in the case of the ocean, which has taken up something like 90% of um, of the carbon that we've emitted in industrial history and is already considerably more acidified than it was, than it ever has been before, considerably warmer. Um, and that's having a quite dramatic impact on all of the, you know, billions of, of, um, of species or um, animal, fish and animal lives that, that, that live in that ocean. Um, now, if we put a pause on warming, it's possible that some of that would stabilize, but it's unlikely that it would reverse on any time scale that it really makes sense for us to think about. That's how dramatic the changes that we've already engineered are. And so I think you know, there is this one of the ways in which I'm a little bit distinct from many other people who are in the climate or environmental movement as either activists or um, policymakers or uh, writers, is that I really do come to this really as a climate-focused person, not as an environment-focused person. You know, if I if there was a bargain in front of me and I was like, I gotta ruin the planet's environment in order to save the planet's climate, I would hate to make that bargain, but I would do it. And I think that other people feel differently, and so they're gonna have different um, different sets of interests in these questions about preservation. But to me, the most important thing is to limit the amount of carbon that's put into the atmosphere so that all of the ways in which climate change is affecting our lives can be limited rather than exacerbated. And so my interest is, you know, I would li- I would love to see 30% of the US set aside in a rewilding project. Joe Biden's sort of said he- he'd like to do that. We'll see if it happens. Um, other parts of the world have already undertaken some amount of that um, you know have have gone down that path to some degree Um, but what that means ultimately for climate I think is an open question and I wouldn't assume myself that it's like a slam dunk victory um, for those who are hoping to uh, to limit warming we'll see.
1: I think one of the things that I've seen in the last actually even only in the last sort of year or two really uh, is an acknowledgement that you can't just plant trees as a get out of jail free card. You know, like yes, we need to plant a lot of trees because they are the uh, cheapest, um, you know, most proven way of pulling carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Uh, and and yes, there are some new kind of engineering uh, approaches to to doing that, but it's kind of early days for that yet. Actually, what we need to do is just stop putting it up there in the first place, um, and and that we need to do that at a, at a fairly remarkable uh, speed um, and and scale. Um, and and so i and you know that that's all kind of as you say well canvassed uh, in in kind of other other domains and it's not like we're getting on with it but but you know uh, it is I I want to return to the question that you were you were talking about before. about the thing that you were really interested in is some of those kind of cultural shifts you talked about in in your book. You you use the phrase cultural flexibility, uh, which is a, a phrase I wanted to inquire uh, about uh, as well, um, because in it you know the technological uh, and the economic is considerably easier. I think well, well n- not easy. It's uh, less difficult than... Yeah. Um, you see
0: how it could be done.
1: Yeah, that's right, that's right. Whereas, you know, what what kind of sounds a little bit like trying to rewire human nature um, is both kind of smacks of social engineering, but also, uh, I think, is something of an uphill, uphill battle. But you're a journalist uh, and a storyteller uh, and a remarkable writer, if you don't mind my saying. Um yes. So I'm curious about what you think we can do and what what does cultural flexibility mean in in relation to that?
0: Well, one thing I would say is that on this point, not just with regard to climate, but with regard to radical change generally, um, we've sort of been propagandized in the West for a couple of generations to believe that anything outside of, you know, neoliberal market capitalism is sort of contrary to human nature, and that that system is an inevitable outgrowth of um, the natural competition among peoples and among nations. And I say that, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a man of the left, but I'm not a radical. I don't think we need an absolute revolution. I think market capitalism has done a lot of good things for the world. I think it's also done a lot of bad things for the world, but, you know, I, I, um, I think As I was saying earlier, I think we sort of need to take um, allies where we can find them. And I do think that there are market forces that can can help us here. But I think that the more important lesson at a conceptual level is just to say the system that we've lived within for a couple of generations and in fact have exported and built out elsewhere around the world in a quasi-colonialist way is not the only model of human living or human flourishing. And you know, honestly, I would I would say I would I would point to the leadership in New Zealand as one sign of that. You know, um, your Prime Minister has talked about the limitations of GDP as a measure of well-being and the need to get beyond that in thinking about how we measure progress. That is not you know, a lonely voice crying out in the wilderness, although she may be the most powerful person in the world to have really highly endorsed that idea. But there are major economists, um, many of whom used to be part of a quite conventional economic consensus, who are now finding themselves saying the same thing. Um, That effort, that particular effort to re-engineer GDP isn't all that far along, but I think we've seen in the long decades since the Great Recession, um, a real reckoning inside the economics profession, but also more broadly with the limits and costs of the kind of the system that we've been living in um, since Reagan and Thatcher um, really you know, installed it uh, globally um, you know, a couple of decades ago. And I think we need to take that lesson even further and understand that humans are creatures of circumstance. We are adaptable, we are resilient, and we want to live well and take care of those around us. But exactly what measures Promise that are not set in stone and are not necessarily passed from one generation to the next but reinvented um, for each generation waking up to new challenges and new threats and i think that we can start to see the wisdom of a more flexible approach in say the model of the green new deal in the u.s which is you know In certain ways, it's a complicated and imperfect proposal. It's also distributed. It's not a single piece of legislation. It's a little hard to talk about. But its central proposition is just that we will flourish more if we focus on fighting climate change and protecting those people who are vulnerable from it than we would if we focus on promoting economic growth. And in fact, even using the narrow metrics of economic growth, We'll probably do better if we focus on fighting climate change than if we follow the same playbook that we've inherited. I think that logic is really quite powerful and can be extended all around the world. And I would return to the question of air pollution, which I think is a really powerful vector of this story. I mean, I would say I do think air pollution is going to become a much bigger part of the way that we talk about an environmental issues going forward, in part because there is this growing academic literature that shows just how devastating it is, not just on the health metrics that I mentioned before, with nine million people dying every year globally. You know, the average resident of New Delhi loses nine years of his life to air pollution. The average resident of the U.S. loses two years of his life to air pollution, and the US has has clean air by global standards, but 95% of the world's population is breathing dangerously polluted air, according to the WHO. Um, And those effects go beyond those health effects. They affect cognitive performance, they affect economic performance, they affect mental health. Um, All of those things, every aspect of human well-being that you could possibly imagine is tied up um, in air pollution. And this is not some abstract question. It's like, if you walk outside in Delhi, you know you're suffering. (laughs) It's not a mystery, um, and the people there—they don't quite have—you know—there there have been some movements to try to clean up the air in that city, um, but you know it's—it's it's been a little bit unsuccessful to this point, in part because of the complications of Indian politics, and I don't mean to sing, single Delhi out—you um, know there are many many cities in India and China that are that are roughly as bad, um, but you know this is—if you—if if you took someone from Delhi and installed them in—you know—Auckland they would feel better. And that logic would be very clear to them, even if it didn't affect their, you know, the size of their bank account. They would know that their life was more comfortable and more rewarding. And of course, there are other there are many parts of New Zealand where it would be even better to take them in and, than plucking them down in the middle of Auckland. But even Auckland is such an improvement. This is like, I think, a, um, a, you know, it's, it's a very powerful way of thinking about the problem, which is to say, if we can address environmental issues and climate issues, almost everyone on the planet will benefit in ways that they can appreciate themselves. even going beyond that, the economic logic that a decarbonized world will be uh, on a more you know on a more robust growth path is quite powerful um, and we will be flourishing in in many other ways as well if we can say address, the geopolitical challenges, to you know, migration crisis and that sort of thing. So if we manage to like solve all of these, or even address—I shouldn't say solve, because I think that solve is, you know, kind of a foolish hope at this point. But if we can address all of these challenges, we are going to find ourselves much, much better off in ways that we are not invisible to us. But they may not show—they may not show up in some of our narrower accounts of uh, human well-being. But that just shows us that those accounts are too narrow. Mm. and that we need to, um, you know, redefine them and, re- and you know, and, and reconceptualize what it means to thrive. I think we're on the path to doing that, but I think um, there's a lot more work to be done in terms of defining um, a life well-worth lived and um, especially what it means to be healthy and happy, not just at the individual level, but at the kind of community, national and international level as well.
1: I wanted to ask you how... Uh, you got into this right like you didn't start as a climate guy (laughs) uh and and you wrote about many other topics before you got onto climate change and then ultimately uh the book and i also wanted to ask you what's next for you you know given everything that you've just said and what you think needs to happen what are you working on
0: well the first question is you know i got into this out of fear (laughs) I, you know, I'm a journalist who is interested in the near future and an interested in science and technology. And so I've been sort of keeping an eye on the news on climate for a while. But out of the corner of my eye, it wasn't a central preoccupation. And as someone who, you know, as I said earlier, like grew up in you know, the 80s and 90s in the US, I, I, I don't remember a time before we were talking about climate change, but I also understood it as something that was happening, you know, in the distant future. Probably to parts of the world that I was never going to live in, um, and you know that the impacts were going to be real and perceptible and probably worth fighting for, fighting to you know protect, but not that we're going to overwhelm you know whole civilizations. Um, and the especially in in 2016, I started seeing a lot more alarming research um, looking at some of these scarier, higher end uh, warming scenarios that made all of those propositions seem quite naive. Um, no, I, I don't think that, you know, I'm not one of these people who thinks that human civilization is gonna collapse because of four degrees of warming, but I think we're gonna be facing many large challenges, um, which could conceivably make, you know, could really um, multiply the amount of human suffering in the world, um, even beyond the level that we have today, which I think by any moral standard is, is too high. Um, and I looked around and saw most of my competitors writing about climate in what I took at the time to be a sort of misleadingly optimistic way, which is to say that um, it was being written and story told in, in much of the same terms that I had first learned about climate change in you know 1995 or whatever. Um, and I thought, well, I'm seeing the scientific news that's much scarier than that. I'm responding to that fear myself, feeling like this is a much bigger, more dramatic, more all-encompassing story than i understood and i imagined there was there would be other people out there who who felt the same way and so i wrote a story um, explicitly looking at worst case scenarios for climate in 2017 which was a massive phenomenon it was you know i work in new york magazine it was for a while uh, the most widely read story we'd ever published and i think it it taught me that i'd been right in all of those intuitions you know um that there was an audience out there who felt like they had been sort of lied to to is maybe a little bit strong, but they had been, you know, misled into complacency about this issue and were ready to be talked to straight. And I wasn't alone in that, you know, that the U.N. 1.5 degree report came out the following year and, and took a very similar approach, a much more explicit, outspoken, alarmist um, rhetoric in there than you know, the U.N. body had ever done before. And the result of that report was the mass Global movement that we were talking about earlier. You know, Greta Thunberg had started striking before them, but nobody had heard of her before that report came out. Um, you know, AOC had not been elected to Congress in the U.S. Um, Extinction Rebellion had not been formed. So many of the climate, um, sort of the major at elements of the climate movement um, that we know today, formed or gained a huge following in the immediate aftermath of that uh, 1.5 degree report. And so I think, in that sense, my perspective was sort of, you know. Um, vindicated for a second time, which is to say, you know, I don't think that we only need to talk about, you know, the scariest stuff when we talk about climate change. But for too long, we avoided talking about the scary stuff. And as a result, people were simply not as motivated as they might have been to take action. So here we are now, a couple of years later, the landscape is really very different. It's not just that people at the ground level are much more motivated, much more scared, and feel a much stronger sense of urgency. As we were talking about earlier, it percolates up all the way through the highest levels of corporate power and international political power. The question is, you know, um, where do we go from here? Um, you know, the decarbonization targets that have been set by many of these countries and people are inadequate to prevent two degrees of warming, even if they're all fulfilled. And there are good reasons to think they probably won't be fulfilled, at least at the pace that um, you know has been has been stated, um, which means that we're likely to end up north of two degrees, which is again a level that most scientists would have long considered catastrophic. And I think if you look at the particular impacts, it will be. Um, And that to me leads to, you know, the other side of the ledger, which is um, climate adaptation. And I do think that that um, is a really important subject that for at least the kind of micro generation during which time I've been a part or adjacent to the climate movement has been, um, you know, an unpopular uh, subject for activists to talk about because they thought that talking about how we could respond to and protect um, the, you know, protect ourselves from these assaults and impacts was an excuse for not decarbonizing fast enough. It would tell people that we could handle whatever was coming. And I understand the the logic of that argument, the the moral hazard logic, but I also think we know now we're going to be getting warming that is, puts up, I mean, we are already today entirely outside the window of temperatures that enclose all of human history. So we are already living in unprecedented times and everything we've ever done as a species as the result of climate conditions, we've already left behind. So we know what we're dealing with is unprecedented. We also know we're gonna get considerably more warming from here, which means that we're gonna be dealing with much, much more assaults and disruptions than we have to this point. And we know that we've done a really poor job of responding even to the climate changes that we've seen today. So the challenge of responding to the climate changes, we're likely to see a two or two and a half or even three degrees of warming go well beyond um, the kinds of efforts that we've made so far. And in fact, I think may prove harder and larger as a challenge than even the project of decarbonization. Um, If we really need to like you know, rebuild or retrofit almost all of the world's infrastructure. Um, If we need to, you know, practically speaking, build seawalls or natural flood barriers around every major human settlement um, on the planet. If we need to, you know, make sure that all of agriculture grown anywhere on the the, planet Earth, Um, is much more resilient both to higher temperatures and to higher carbon concentrations. That's a level of genetic modification of crops that goes beyond anything that's ever been done before. Um, I think we can do a lot of that and achieve a lot of protection and resilience through those efforts. But I think we also need to sort of culturally, especially at the vanguard of the climate movement, at least make room for discussions of adaptation alongside um, the project of decarbonization, rather than treating it as a kind of a trade-off, we're well past the point where we can afford to just do one or just do the other. We need to do both sort of at maximum speed and maximum intensity. And I've written a little bit, I've written some about some about this before, but, um, you know, in, in a piece I wrote a few months ago, um, but I think I'm likely to um, sort of continue focusing there in part because it also opens up, you know, many more narrative cultural questions of the kinds that we were talking about earlier you know what does it mean to be building out carbon capture plantations that you know take up a large portion of the earth's surface um what are the kind of local political fights that spring up over whether to protect a particular coastal community or let the area flood how do we decide and using what um what literal calculus how do we decide which communities to protect and which to which to um, Expose and especially on on the geopolitical stage, how do we start to think about cooperating in a way that protects the most vulnerable? Um, How do we, especially in a time of you know recent years growing nationalism and nativism, how do we try to extend our circles of empathy to include those people whose lives are most disrupted by um, you know the carbon costs of uh, our wealth, to put it quite bluntly? Um, and that is, those are all very big and open questions and I don't know how we're going to respond, which makes it, um, you know, an especially fascinating next chapter to be thinking and writing
1: about. (laughs) Do you uh, see yourself staying in journalism? Because now you're talking like a policymaker. (laughs) Well, um, or an activist,
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just, I'm temperamentally um, an observer, an analyst, and a wallflower, but I often say climate change is too important to uh, give in to your temperamental inclinations. We need a movement that's bigger than people who are natural activists. We need a movement full of people who are you know, reluctant to join movements. We need a movement of people who are skeptical of environmentalism. We need a movement of hypocrites who just want to make money off it. I mean, we need everybody. And I think, you know, on some level that that logic has to apply to me as well. Um, You know, I've had some interactions with a number, you know, with politicians in the US, but I'm not doing any directed policy work or anything like that at the moment, although we'll see. It's also the case that um, my book is being turned into a kind of an interesting um, television show, by Adam McKay, who's the guy who did like Vice and the big short, Um, and the the basic idea is that it's a sort of a black mirror about climate change. So it's uh, fiction. Um, Each episode is sort of standalone um, story about life in a really transformed world. And I'll be involved in that in some way, although, you know, he's, he's got the keys, he's really driving the show. Um, And I may end up, you know, I may end up up doing more writing in that vein, too. But I don't, I don't entirely, the short answer is, I don't entirely know. But um, from a, 30,000 or 50,000 foot view, you know, for me, the world is too interesting to, to to not want to be thinking about and writing about in a narrative way. And that's why I got into journalism in the first place. It's likely to be at least the center of my work going forward, even if I find myself being pulled off into, you know, policy or activism
1: or, or Hollywood here and there. We'll see. <laughs> that show sounds terrifying. I look forward <laughs> to it. <laughs> I have uh one final question. So given that you've talked a lot about how uh we need to focus on um the kind of narrative components as you know um and 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 the cultural memes that we live within. How do you think that politicians like me should be talking about this? because there's one school of thought that says, look, if you focus on uh, the facts of the situation, people will just go, ah, it's all terrifying and hide under their duvets for the rest of their lives, right? And not do anything about it, because it's disempowering. Um, On the flip side, if you just focus on the silver linings and what's going well, or, you know, you you develop a sort of an optimism bias in which people feel like they don't need to do anything because it's all taken care of, um, you know, What do we do about that? (laughs) Um,
0: Well, the big thing I would say is that um, different audiences are going to respond to different kinds of messages. And the most important thing for anyone in any sector of society, um, not just politicians, is to talk about climate change in the way that they relate to it themselves personally and that there are enough points of um, access for everyone uh, to be able to craft their own narrative. And inevitably, if they see it in a particular way, there are gonna be other people who see it in that way too. But I think the major breakthrough of the last few years in political rhetoric about climate is tied up in the economic opportunities that now seem real. For a long time, you know, when people talked about green growth, it just seemed empty. It didn't seem like it was a real promise. It felt like it was going to be costly to push this transition further along in terms of jobs, in terms of um, economic growth generally, and perhaps even in terms of uh, environmental impact. Um, It is now, for a lot of reasons, because of a lot of the changes we've discussed, um, sitting right in front of us as an enormous opportunity, which makes the positive story that can be told about climate change as large and dramatic as the negative story, but they have to be told together. You know, it is not just that if we don't do anything, we're going to be dealing with, you know, century once in a century heat waves every couple of years or dramatic floods. You know, um, simultaneously, like they've seen in, in Australia um, recent, li- recently. Um, it's not just that those things are are likely. It's that if we take the action that we need to take to avoid some of those outcomes, we also end up engineering a civilization-scale fresh start for ourselves. And that, if it's designed right, with the right values in mind, will be an enormous payoff, even putting aside the climate benefits. And here I do think that, you know, that those air pollution points are really, really valuable. You know, In the US, it's been calculated that we could pay entirely for our project of decarbonization simply through the public health benefits of eliminating air pollution from burning fossil fuels. So we could put aside all of the climate benefits and still it would make dollars and cents sense to get rid of fossil fuels immediately. That is a logic that holds true again in the US where we have really clean air. And it's even clearer when you look at places like India or Indonesia or China that are suffering from much, much more pollution. I think that logic is really, really powerful and exciting. And I think the opportunity here is to talk about, especially in this new era of you know, aggressive government intervention and action, to talk about the opportunity to build a next generation flourishing human society. Now, I know that is often what has been said by climate activists going back decades, and it's gotten very little purchase. But I think that's because it really was a bit of a fantasy then, and it now does seem very much to be a reality. In the US, we call it the Green New Deal because it brings to mind Mm. the New Deal, which did engineer the American century. That is how the US thrived in the way that it did in the aftermath of World War II. It was because of that massive public investment, partly through the war effort, but partly through the New Deal that came before. Climate change can produce the same kinds of investments, which will pay off in the same rolling way if we design them right. But we have to design them right. We can't do it as a like payoff to polluting industries. We can't do it um, you know, without taking a holistic account of human flourishing. We need to understand not just that there are these opportunities before us, but that the payoffs will be much more diverse and much more far ranging than um, we've ever appreciated before, and I think that the more that we can talk about that fact, that what we're, really, what we're really doing is public investment in the future, which will pay off quickly to almost everyone, if not everyone, I think the better off um, public awareness and excitement will be. But I would also say, at this point, looking at the polls that I see, I don't think there's all that much of a messaging challenge. I think that most people in most parts of the world understand the urgency of the challenge and understand that aggressive public action is necessary. Now, the question of whether policymakers take that lead and sort of earn that trust on these issues is an open one and has to do a lot with the political economy of fossil capitalism. And I don't know. I think almost certainly we're. Going to judge ourselves having fallen short, but where we fall on that spectrum and how short we fall um, is a matter for, you know, all of us alive today to decide. Um, maybe most notably, people like you who are in, in leadership positions of actual political consequence, not just people like me who are standing on the sidelines <laughs> <laughs> with, with our notebooks and, and uh, you know and making little making little notes down.
1: Well, don't sell yourself short at all, David. (laughs) You you have made my job considerably easier uh, because without the uh, work that you've done and and people like you have done, there'd be, you know, people like me would just be shouting into a void. Uh, look, that is a perfect note uh, on which to finish it, and I've taken up more of your time than I promised to at the beginning. So uh, I really want to thank you for your generosity uh, of spirit and of time uh, in being on the show with me today. Thank you.
0: Uh, it, was a great, it was great to talk to you, and I hope, I hope we get the chance to cross paths in the real world sometimes.
1: <laughs> thank you very much for listening, and thank you to David Wallace-Wells for joining me Feel free to get in touch any time. My email again is james.shaw at parliament.govt.nz. is authorised by me, James Shaw, List MP, Parliament Buildings, Wellington.